Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about mechanisms. We're talking about more than one mechanism in a game, what it looks like to have multiple mechanisms in your design. And we're talking to Darren Terpstra from Ginger Snap Gaming. Darren, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, man, excited to talk about this. This is something I feel like people interact with all the time with having you know lots of different things going on, lots of different systems and mechanisms in their games, but maybe it's not something they think a whole lot about. And so I'm, I'm excited just to kind of dive deep and, and look at different games that do it in some really, really interesting and innovative ways, you know, talking through some really amazing published games, but also talking, you know, prototypes and your design experience and kind of what you've seen uh, through your uh, own games and testing and whatnot. But before we get into all of that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that good stuff. Yeah, so Darren Terpstra out here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, I really got into board game design because of this topic. Um, we always played Risk like in youth group when I was younger. Like I love area control game, dude is on a map game. And uh, Dominion is really the game that brought me back into modern board gaming. But after you play, you know, 50, 100 games of Dominion, you start just running out of steam. And I'm like, man, I really want a deck builder where you can, you know, battle your friends, you know, negotiate, beg, you know, create alliances, all the good stuff that I remember from, you know, risk and different things like that. Um, you know, modern favorites like blood rage and integrating that into a deck builder. So really my, uh, board game design journey started with just wanting to create that game. And it's sort of my, People call it my white whale game because it's the one that I've been going after for like four years now. So that's where I come from. Yeah, very cool, man. All right. And so as we get into this, what are we really talking about? I think it's maybe a little bit obvious with this whole, you know, multiple me mechanisms idea. But like, what are we really talking about specifically when we say multi-mechanism games? So to me, multi-mechanism games is when you take two mechanisms that haven't been integrated together as often or maybe even at all and then creating a game from it. I think it's so easy these days to, you know, just kick something up on Kickstarter and say, hey, this is a new deck builder. And you look at it and it's nice and it's got great art, but does it really add anything else to the genre? Is it pushing board gaming forward in any, you know, real meaningful way? Or is it just reskinning an old idea? Gotcha. Okay, makes a lot of sense. And now so often I talk about and have so many guests on the show, we talk about streamlining and cutting your game all the way down to its core, its essence, you know, the, the main experience of it. But today I feel like we're talking about maybe adding two. And so let's talk about kind of the appeal of not just streamlining a game all the way down. Because I mean, you, you could easily make a game that's just one mechanism. I mean, Dominion, it's one mechanism. All it is is deck building. There's nothing else to think about. You're only building a deck and that's it. But there's a lot of appeal into doing more. And so why do you think there's that? But you, you, I think you alluded to it, to it a little bit in your, your bio. And so give me a little bit more of why you think people are drawn to these games that have a lot more going on than just one idea or one mechanism. I think people are drawn to these games because it adds more strategy, more uh, fun, more variability into uh, a mechanism that they know and love. Um, it's funny going to uh, conventions and stuff and bringing my 
battling deck builder ignite because people once they understand the concept of it if they've played a deck builder before it really only takes five minutes to explain to them hey this is you know the differences from a normal deck builder and this is how you integrate the dudes on a map you know area control battling uh pieces of ignite into what you already know as far as a deck builder so it really it's the uniqueness and innovation but then also being able to explain the game super succinctly at a convention or on your kickstarter page yeah definitely all right let's get into some to some examples uh just some of the most well-known games around uh, i feel like certain designers are much better at this than others uh, i feel like designers who have been designing for a long time are much better than ones that are just kind of starting out and so that might be something to think about if you're listening to this and you're just now getting into the hobby maybe don't have a game with seven mechanisms like maybe that's too many like maybe you start with just trying to figure out one and make that work and then you kind of move up because i feel like this is this is something that the, the more you learn and the more experience you gain, the better you get at being able to streamline having multiple things going on in a game and keeping it fun and keeping the experience, you know, what you want it to be without it being a four hour game and things like that. So let's talk about some well-known games. Uh, let's talk about Blood Rage. So Blood Rage has very interesting stuff going on. You got card drafting, you got area control, action point allowance systems and whatnot. So like, tell me about this game and like why it all works, how it all works together. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, Blood Rage is a great example. It's got multiple mechanisms all thrown into a beautiful game, but everything lends itself to the other uh, mechanisms that are in it. I mean, your board that you have in front of you succinctly shows, hey, here are the different spots that you are allowed to put the cards that you draft. And then you look over at the board and you see, okay, here are the opportunities that you have as far as placing people. And then you look at your board again, you've got your action allowance like meter. And so all of it incorporates super well um, so that it doesn't take too long to explain or to figure out because every mechanism lends itself to the other mechanisms. I think another great example is Concordia. If you've played Concordia, you've played a game that has something like four, five mechanisms all smashed into one, but it doesn't feel like it does because everything lends itself to the next mechanism. Yeah, definitely. The cool thing about Concordia, like you're saying, tons of stuff going on and a three page rule book. I mean, one of the shortest rule books I've ever read. And it's a super deep, you know, a lot of stuff going on type of game. What, what I love about Blood Rage is all the mechanisms inform the other mechanisms. Like you couldn't take any mechanism out of that game and it still work. Like all those things have to be there. Like it's as streamlined as can be, but at the same time, there's lots of different things, lots of different systems happening, but they all lend themselves to each other, like you were saying. So, you know, the, the card that I draft is also going to affect the, my area control on the board, you know, the monsters I get to bring in, how I'm going to do combat and that kind of thing. They Everything affects my the meters that are going up and down based on the cards I draft, based on things that are happening. Like it all works together. And I think that's one thing that we need to, to dive into is making this stuff work together, right? So not just having extra mechanisms for their own sake or because they're cool or because you think they're fun, but I think they all have to work together. So what would be your advice for a designer right now? They've got, you know, three, four mechanisms in the game, but it kind of feels like two or three separate games, right? It's almost like you're playing a game over here and a game over there. They don't super feel connected. Like what would be your advice as far as making those things streamlined so they actually work together? Um, I think you talked about it previously. Simplicity is going to be king. Uh, one of the great things about Blood Rage is that the strength of the monster is 90% of the time what you spent on that monster. So it can only have, so it only has one number that you have to worry about. There's a lot of games that, you know, you've got the side of the card and it's got 16 different numbers and like an icon and you, you know, can attack at a plus four if you're attacking from behind with your ninja. And, you know, all of that just gets super, super draining as far as teaching and also as far as playing. So simplifying all of that down as much as you can 
is super helpful. So for example, Ignite, uh, you only have three hit points for each unit, which is practically unheard of for most battling games, but it keeps it super clean because you know, okay, if I can't block this attack, it's going to do one damage. And it just lends to simplicity. Um, if you've got a game that you're already started working on and has multiple mechanisms, uh, see what parts are, I think, the most extraneous to your design. Things that aren't as tied into the rest of the feeling and the gameplay um, and the heart of your game. Look at those and see if those can be tweaked or removed completely. Um, I think that's a great piece of advice if you've already been starting the creation of the game. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like the more mechanisms you have in a game, the simpler they all need to be. Now, there are there is a market for, you know, three hour games and four hour games and you know, tons of crazy stuff going on, you know, 30 page, 40 page rule books. There is a market for that. But I'm talking about just in general, the general gamer out there doesn't want to experience that. And so I feel like if you're going to have three, four, five different systems, different mechanisms, different things that are working all together, then you probably need to make them as simple as possible, as opposed to if you only have one or two mechanisms in a game, you can make those a little bit more complex because you're not having to, to deal with as many you know separate things going on. So I think that's another thing to think about. The more you add, the simpler it needs to be for each part, if that makes sense. And it's amazing how much you can tweak a game by just removing one mechanism and adding in another. If you think yeah. of the Madagot, I think that's how you say it, Madagot Trilogy um, of Innis, uh, Cyclades, and Kemet. All of those are area control games, and all of them are very similar from a component standpoint. But then when you think about it, Cyclades is an auction in area control, Innis is card drafting in area control, and Kemet is action point allowance and area control. But they feel completely different when you're playing them. Everyone has their favorites, everyone has the one that they lean to, but... It's just taking out that one mechanism of how you move around the people on the map and then putting in another mechanism of how to add and move people around on the map. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like area control really lends itself to having other mechanisms alongside it. I feel like one, it's it's not a super complex thing to understand. I have more dudes in this area than you do. Therefore, I'm winning these points. I mean, it's just a very you know easy to grasp concept. So maybe that's part of it as well. But what do you think as far as area control, why it lends itself so easily to you know adding uh, a deck uh, building element alongside it or an auction element or action point allowance. Like what, what makes it easier to do that? I feel like area control is very much a heart uh, mechanism, if I can use that phrase, uh, meaning that it's the main mechanism that you then incorporate other things into. Obviously, there's going to be exceptions to this, but, you know, dice chucking isn't as much of a core mechanism uh, as area control. You know, social deduction is usually the main mechanism of a game. It isn't tacked on at the end to make it, you know, slightly different from another game. You sort of build a game around uh, the main mechanism. And I just feel like area control, because it's so simple, but also can produce so much variability and interaction between the players, becomes a very heart, uh, heart or centered uh, mechanism as opposed to some of the others. Yeah, for sure. I think there are definitely some mechanisms that are much easier to make core mechanisms than others. Area control being one of those, deck building being another. And I feel like after Dominion kind of showed you what it is by itself, then you had all these games that came out. Trains, I think, was one of the first ones that said, all right, this is deck building, but there's also a board. And you kind of manipulate these different tiles. And you add these trains and these systems onto a board. And then now we have games like Clank and, and some just amazing games coming out that kind of add on to that core experience. And so talk to me a little bit about uh, deck building and, and what you've seen as far as being able to add mechanisms to that core concept. 
Yeah, building a deck builder is honestly super fun because you can just bring it in whatever direction you want, uh, whatever your creativity can come up with. Like we have, we're just so proud of some of the creative cards that we've created for Ignite. Um, so the core of deck building then is that you're getting cards that other people don't have in order to improve your deck and hopefully make it better than everyone else's. So you can take that concept and turn it into a combat game. You can turn it into an area control game like Paths of Light and Shadow. You can turn it into an exploration game like uh, Clank did. It's really just trying to figure out what you want the end game to feel like and then implementing cards through deck building that'll get you to that point. Right. I feel like deck building is just generic enough that you can add pretty much any theme, any concept alongside it that, that you want. Uh, I think bag building is the same way, right? Uh, the idea that you, you've got a bag full of uh, tokens or marbles or meeples or something like that. And then over the course of the game, you're, you're adding to it and changing things and, and you're drawing in there and that's effectively your deck, but it's in a bag. That's generic enough where you could add, I mean, millions of different themes alongside it and it would still work. You know, I, I feel like uh, these these types of games, the, the theme incorporates really well with with this core concept, it's not super tied to it. Like if you were doing uh, Orleans and, and trying to make it also an action point allowance system, that'd be that'd be odd, right? But the, the back building makes it cool where you, you're pulling out these different occupations and, and pulling out these different things that allow you to go to different places around the board. And it's just kind of an interesting thing that's just generic enough where it, where it works. Whereas a lot of other mechanisms just wouldn't work at all right there because it would feel funny, you know? And so I think there's definitely certain mechanisms. And, and give me your, your thoughts. What are some other mechanisms that are just generic enough or, or just foundational enough maybe uh, to be core concepts that you can add on other mechanisms fairly easily? Yeah, I think we touched on most of the big ones, area control, deck building, bag building. Um, I think card drafting is sort of in the middle between adding it onto a core mechanism and it being a core mechanism itself, depending on which way you want to go with it. Um, again, social deduction is sort of one of those core ones, although it's harder to take other mechanisms and implement it into a social deduction game just because of it being social deduction to begin with. I think to me, there's almost like core concepts, uh, core mechanisms, and then there's secondary mechanisms. So like simultaneous action selection. It's not like you're going to build an entire game around that necessarily. Uh, you know, take, um, take Puerto Rico. Like it's all simultaneous, or it's action selection, but it's built around, you know, Euro mechanics and resource management and um, things of that nature. Same with action programming. I mean, unless you're going to go back, you know, 20 years and beat out Robo Rally early on, um, you know, that's an action or a action programming game that then's been added to other games. And then you get uh, games that incorporate that into their main mechanic, like Lords of Zidit. Yeah, definitely. And let's talk for a moment about the design theory of it all. Like, what do you, what do you think in as far as like player psychology and things like that? Uh, when it comes to having multiple uh, mechanisms in a game, let's kind of go into the deeper side and, and look at it from the gamer's brain perspective. What do you think's going on as far as like why these games appeal uh, to certain groups of people, but also why, you know, games that have a lot going on, a lot of, more, a lot of mechanisms are also maybe something to, to shy away from depending on your demographic, depending on the style of gamer you're chasing with your game. Yeah, I think that's key. I think it's all about the type of gamer that you're going after. Um, the type of gamers that you usually see at conventions and that, you know, throw $100 out for a Kickstarter campaign are looking for something deeper, something that 
triggers their imagination and their strategic part of their brain. And they really want, you know, something that hasn't been done before. While on the other hand, you've got games like Queen Domino and King Domino that are just, you know, super simple, great games that incorporate very few mechanics and pieces, but end up with a game that you can play over and over again. So really, it depends on if you're going for that super strategic gamer that wants something new and innovative and uh, top of the line, or if you're going after someone that they just want to spend 20 bucks on a game that they can play with their kids over and over again and have a great time with. Yeah, I think it's something just to be super aware of when you're starting out and designing a game. Like if you've got, a, and this also depends on your theme. Like if you've got a game about cats, you probably shouldn't have six mechanisms in your game. Like that's the people who want to play a game about cats probably aren't your hardcore, you know, two hour experience Euro gamers. And so I think your theme also needs to inform the number of uh, mechanisms you have in a game and the different systems that you have in play. Yeah, I would uh, completely agree. And I think your theme can help you differentiate your game into which category of gamer you're going after. I think adding a fun and unique theme can set your game apart though, whether it is a, you know, super strategic game that you're going after super heavy gamers with, or, uh, you know, lesser, lesser strategy game that's a little bit lighter uh, for the family. I think the theme that you do can very much pigeonhole you into one or the other. Right. That's a good point. All right, let's talk about prototyping. What, what's been your experience as far as prototyping these, these kinds of games? Because it can be difficult, right? If you're still in the design process and you're still trying to figure out, all right, what systems are going to work? Can I can this deck building work or do I need to do bag building? Do I need this? So you're still playing around. You're still like moving things in and out. It can be difficult to prototype if you have all these different systems that are going to work together and kind of rely on each other. And so what's been your experience as far as just making prototypes early on, especially in the in the design process? I think it comes down to figuring out what the core piece of your game is, what the heart and soul of it is going to be, and prototyping that out first. So for Ignite, I literally got thousands of just blank business cards and started writing on them. Just 10 of each card. This is how much it costs. This is what it does. This is the name of the card. Just as quick and simple as I could. I totally could do it much simpler now, um, knowing what I do, but that's the way that I did it at that point. Um, and now I'm working on a bag builder slash 4X game. And the main heartbeat of that is the uh, actions that you have available to you using the things that you're taking from your bag. And so I went after that sort of home base uh, player board first to figure that out. And then you can always find things around the house, in my personal opinion, that you can use in order to uh, prototype the rest of it. I mean, I got colored cubes from Amazon for like 30 bucks. And they've been carrying me the full distance up until this point. Yeah, definitely. I, I think my, my experience has been figure out what the main core mechanism is and then play the game with only it. And is it fun? And if it's not fun, I don't know that adding a whole bunch more mechanisms is going to make it fun. Like, I think that's, you kind of need to start with some kind of enjoyable experience early on. That's just the one, maybe two systems going on. And if you're not really seeing a life in that, if you're not really seeing a game in that by itself, then you probably need to rework that before you start adding a bunch of stuff. I feel, I feel like sometimes people, they think, well, maybe if I add this, maybe if I add that, maybe if I add, you know, these seven other things, then the game will be fun. It's like, probably not. Like if your core mechanism, your core game, your core experience isn't enjoyable, I don't think adding all the coolest mechan mechanisms in the world is going to fix that. And so I would say 
uh, just start off with that one thing, play it, you know, push some cards around the table, push some dice around, push some pawns around and just see, all right, how's this work? Uh, what does it feel like? Am, am I enjoying this? Are there uh, some interesting choices and decisions that I'm having to make right now? Okay, cool. This is kind of working. And then, all right, what if I add this thing to it now? Okay, now I get these other cool decisions I can make. And so you kind of build it from the from the foundation up. Because I know a lot of people get super overwhelmed or, or they get super just like, oh, I don't know where to start. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, frustrated because all these things I got ideas for and I don't know how to like put them together. And it can be overwhelming, especially as a new designer. If you have ideas for this giant game, like, and, and ultimately it never even sees a lot of day. Ultimately you never prototype it because it's just too much. And so just starting with one concept, one idea, see if it's any good and then add on it, add on to it from there. I think is maybe a better way to go than, than trying to do it all at the beginning when you're probably going to cut out half of it anyway. Yeah, I would totally agree. My big piece of advice that I would give for people who are designing their first game or any game um, is to know what you want it to be from the beginning. So I knew Ignite was going to be a battling deck builder. Um, I'm building Rocket Cats, funny enough that we were talking about cats, which I wanted to feel like uh, Worms Armageddon from when I played video games as a kid. I wanted something that, you know, sort of personified that feeling in a game. And so that's the route that I took to create that is, okay, what mechanisms would best fit the feeling that I want this game to have? Yeah. So let's go a little bit deeper into that. What, what mechanisms did you find that putting together kind of gave you the feeling that you were chasing? Yeah. So we went with card drafting and action programming. Uh, we really wanted the chaotic, you know, feeling of just like missiles in the air, grenades in the air, you know, your cat is falling through the air. Um, so it's called Rocket Cats and essentially you card draft uh, and then you action program the cards that you drafted. Each card has two options as far as what you can do with it. And you're trying to take out the other team's King Cat. So initially we weren't going to do anything with a King Cat. It was just going to be, can you take out the other teams? Um, but then we realized how difficult it is to, you know, action program to that level of certainty. So then we pivoted on that to make it fit with the mechanisms and the way that the game was uh, being developed, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, did you start off with those mechanisms in mind or did you have to change them along the way to kind of make it fit better? We knew we wanted to go with action programming, uh, but after a couple of prototypes and going this way and that, we really felt that card drafting with multi-use cards uh, was the best way to go. So no, we didn't know exactly what it was going to look like from the beginning. We just knew a couple of stipulations, I guess. One, we wanted action programming because we wanted it to move quickly because we wanted this to be a party game. So if you want a party game, you want everyone, you know, doing things at the same time. Um, so we knew we wanted chaos. So we went with action programming. We knew we wanted things to move quickly. So we went with card drafting. So everyone can be doing something along the same time because we knew we wanted it to be a party game with, you know, up to 12 or however many players. So we chose mechanisms that we knew would keep the game moving in a pretty quick pace while also creating that sense of chaos that we wanted uh, in order to get that feeling of Worms Armageddon from my childhood. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And actually, you brought up an, another kind of concept in here, and that's multi-use cards. And I feel like that's adding multiple mechanisms inside the same mechanism. And so let's talk about that for a second. Uh, how can multi-use cards also present you know, two or three uh, other mechanisms all kind of wrapped up into one? I'm just going to say it from the beginning. I love multi-use cards. I think it just adds a whole new dimension to a lot of uh, different mechanisms uh, and allows you for a lot of different opportunities um, and replayability, to be honest. Um, but building 
multi-use cards into something, I feel like is sort of, a, I sort of use it as an escape hatch um, when I run into an issue where I'm like, man, I feel like they don't have enough options right now. Okay, I wonder if multi-use cards could be an effective way to uh, get myself out of this corner. I don't know if that really makes sense to other people, but sometimes I feel like I'm innovating and I'm moving and I'm grooving on a game and then I just hit this corner. And I'm like, shoot, like, I don't know what to do at this point. Um, I feel like multi-use cards have been a useful mechanism for me to get out of that because they produce a lot of options for the player that allow them to feel like they're still in control, to feel like they have options. Um, and I just, I don't know, to me, they've always been sort of used as a escape hatch as opposed to a main mechanism that I've integrated into the game. Yeah, definitely. And they can also be a little bit of a self-balancing thing for a game, especially if you're having to discard a card and have to determine how I'm, how I'm going to use it, right? Am I using it as a resource? Am I using it as the ability? Am I getting something else in return? But I have to get rid of it and I can only use it for one of these three things. Now, which one of these three things do I use it for? Because I want to use it for all three, right? It's a really cool uh, concept. I think San Juan was the first game I ever played that had this really great tension of, wow, I love all these cards in my hand, but I'm going to have to discard a bunch of them to use them as resources to build this other card. Oh, man. And it was just a really cool concept. I was like, wow, this is, this is really great. I wish more games would, would do this and have this kind of multiple use uh, factor for the for the cards because i feel like like you're saying it gives the player more options and makes things easier for you as a designer where you're not having to constantly come up with you know new things and new systems you just have this one system that has multiple facets on it that gives players some interesting choices yeah like the space game that's the name is totally blanking from my mind where you have cards and if you want to put a card down uh you have to spend other cards from your hand so you've got three cards you know you eventually want to play them all but how much am I willing to risk right now to put down that card that I really need as opposed to saving up for another uh, card later on? It just essentially takes out the entire concept of currency with multi-use cards. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's move over into playtesting. What are some of the challenges in playtesting a game that has multiple mechanisms going on? Yeah, playtesting a game that has multiple mechanisms going on is a little bit of a wild west uh, in my opinion because you have to be balancing and innovating on and thinking about multiple uh, concepts and mechanisms all at the same time. So this might be working great, but then if you tweak this over here, all of a sudden you have to rebalance the first thing uh, which you had thought was you know, pretty well set. Um, so you have to be taking everything and just uh, looking at it from 20 feet back as opposed to getting super focused on just one of them. Because if you get too focused on one and don't look at the other, then all of a sudden you're going to get, you know, just too close to the thing and it's going to spiral out of control. Yeah, and I feel like the biggest challenge is it can be difficult to know what's broken. If you have multiple things going on and the game's not working, it's not as easy to sit back and go, oh, obviously it's this over here. Well, no, it could be like one of several things. And so you have to do this this kind of triage of like, okay, well, I think this is the most important thing, but it could also be that and it could also be this other thing and start working kind of step by step through the different systems, you know, tweaking things, trying to figure out what's work, what works. And so I feel like it adds a lot of time to the testing of a game as opposed to just having one mechanism or maybe two where you, you know, all right, like dominion, if dominion is not working, it, well, obviously the deck building stuff's not working. I guess you could look at cards, certain cards could be broken as well, but the, the system overall, it's just a little easier to figure out than if you have, you know, six different systems at the same time. 
Yeah, and it also comes down to uh, the win condition because you don't want a game where everyone takes, you know, mechanism A to get to the finish line as opposed to mechanism B. So the example I keep on going back to is Puerto Rico. Uh, my friends and I have played that game quite a bit, and I don't know if I've ever seen someone just go full boat strategy. Just it doesn't seem to happen as much as the other strategies that you have uh, in that game. You can gain some points through it, but I've never seen someone go so far in and still win the game. And so I feel like that, you know, this is probably super blasphemous or something, but to say that, um, you know, maybe that me mechanic uh, needs to be a little bit tweaked if there was ever a Puerto Rico 2.0, because it doesn't seem like, at least with my playgroups, that people took that avenue to win as much as the other. So that's something that you need to be going through very intently when playtesting to make sure that the different ways to win are equally profitable. Yeah, and if they're even if they're not equally balanced, that the players can figure that out before the game ends and you lose by 100 points and you can't figure out why. Because I feel like that's one of the worst things in my personal experience is when I lose a game by a whole lot and I look back and I go, yeah, but but why? Like, I, I can't figure out, like, really, I did that much different than the player that just dominated. And so that can be a really frustrating thing. And so creating a game that is intuitive enough where your players can go, oh, wow, this strategy is not working like I thought it would, and they can pivot and still have a chance to win. It's a difficult thing to do, but I feel like it's something we need to do as designers. But the, I guess one of the pros of having multiple uh, mechanisms in the game is it adds to a lot of the replayability where you, you can have multiple, multiple, multiple plays and you're still trying to figure out, all right, how do I, how do I really maximize or minimize these systems to, to get the most points to be able to win. And, and you can't just figure the game out after one or two plays because there's so many different systems going on. So I feel like that adds to the, uh, the, the appeal of these style of games and it's something to think about. Yeah, definitely. Totally agree. All right. So let's, let's kind of keep on that play testing track you mentioned just a little bit as far as like, you know, you see players not using a certain system or using a mechanism or made the way it's supposed to be. And so let's talk about cutting. Like what are some other ways that you know, all right, this just needs to be cut or it needs to be exchanged for another thing to try out this, this different mechanism in its place. Like, how do you know that? What's been your experience as far as like when to pull the trigger and change things out or just cut them entirely? For me, the biggest uh, indicator that something needs to be cut is either we forget that it is even there. Um, so I'm working on a game right now where we'll have an event deck variant where you can use these certain cards to uh, have events that add some randomness to the game. Um, but I moved it to a variant as opposed to a piece of the main game because we just kept on forgetting to use it. And so it was extraneous enough that I knew, okay, like some people will really enjoy this, you know, randomness added to it. Um, but it's definitely not central to the game. It helps add to the theme. It helps tie it into the universe that it's um, being built for. But it isn't, you know, a core concept. Um, the other indication that something needs to be cut is when it gets too confusing. So initially in Rocket Cats, we had it so that if you fell for this much time or this many spaces without using a rocket pack, um, you would take damage from hitting the ground. And it just got super confusing to remember and to try and, you know, figure out, okay, how many turns was I falling? Did I use a jetpack? Does anyone remember? You know, all of these things, when you start hitting that friction of, uh, does anyone remember? Or, you know, I don't really understand how this works. When you start hearing those things from playtesters um, or friends or, you know, yourself, then you know something needs to change in order to make this a more fluid experience. 
Yeah, for sure. And even if you keep the mechanism, just finding ways to streamline it, like we were saying before, the more mechanisms you have, the simpler they all need to be kind of overall. Otherwise, you're going to get you're, you're going to get a game with 30 pages of rules. And uh, it's probably not uh, what you're what you're trying to uh, to do. All right. So let's talk about legacy games. This is another idea. You know, we're, we were talking about this before the show and how the kind of the genre of legacy is this really interesting uh, add on to games. So why, why do you think so many uh, games now are coming out with legacy editions, you know, legacy modes of play and things like that? What do you think that uh, appeal is and how does it kind of play into this whole multiple mechanism style game? Yeah, I think. Uh, legacy games and legacy itself uh, is sort of those one of those secondary mechanisms sort of thing. It is, it's not going to be the core of any game, but it's going to add to the fun and the dimensions of another type of game. So you take Pandemic, and you add legacy elements to it, and all of a sudden people are you know super enthused about Pandem- Pandemic again, and you know they're having a ton of fun with a game that they've played, you know dozens and dozens of times but you added a unique sort of secondary mechanism to it to keep it fresh and to add new dimensions to it. Um, I think legacy games and legacy mechanism is, I don't know, sort of like a unicorn because it's just so bright and shiny for people. Um, You know, opening up a new box to see something inside, you know, getting to a new chapter and it's almost like adding story elements that weren't able to be incorporated into a board game previously. Um, It's like you're taking a novel and shoving it into a game as opposed to, you know, here's some races, this is why they're fighting, and that's the storyline behind this game. Um, You're actually able to say, hey, this is, you know, this person, and name this person, and oh, you had a kid, and now, you know, you have to, you know, just all of that sort of stuff is incorporated into the game Uh, And we as humans are so programmed for stories that it just adds a whole new dimension to um, some mechanisms and games that you might, you know, might have been dried out otherwise. Right. And then again, like you said, we, we are wired for story. And also just from a player psychology standpoint, we love opening up boxes or envelopes and, and seeing new stuff. And like we get that dopamine rush and it's like, ooh, you know, and it's a lot of fun. But I feel like one of the main things that legacy style games benefit from is people already know typically how to play the base game. So they're not having to learn all the rules. They're just having to learn a couple new rules, a couple, you know, one or two new mechanisms that then gets to maybe increase that replayability, like you're saying with Pandemic. Somebody who had played Pandemic 100 times could play pandemic legacy and have a brand new, totally uh, new experience and, and have a great time with it because it added these new things. There are stickers, there are new components coming out when you open those uh, boxes and whatnot. And so I feel like it, it's nice because it, it's simpler, right? And then like if pandemic legacy was the very first game of pandemic and like you were having to do all that the first go around, like, Oh man, this is, this is a lot going on. It's kind of overwhelming, but people already knew how to play pandemic and they already got the, you know, I think pandemic rule books only like five pages. I'm like, this is not very long, but they already knew those five pages of rules. And so then, then they could add another page or two as they went out or went on and, and it wasn't overwhelming and, and didn't cause anxiety. And you didn't have to sit there and go, all right, what was that rule? And what was this? Like you already, you already knew the base game. And so I feel like uh, legacy style can really, you can have a lot of fun. And I guess the same thing with expansions. You can, you can bring in new mechanisms because people already know how to play the base game. Yeah, I think it's, I hadn't thought about it before, but I mean, Risk Legacy and Pandemic Legacy were some of the first legacy games put out there. And it was just adding another layer onto something that people had, you know, played for dozens of times. All right, so let's get a little bit more personal in some of the games. You've, you've been talking about some of your games so far, but let's talk about some of your personal challenges with having, you know, a game with multiple mechanisms. What, are, what have been some of the obstacles that you've run into? 
Yeah. So I'll talk about Ignite just because that's the big one that's on my mind right now. Um, the first big thing that we had as far as a difficulty was the turtling, you know, tendency that people have when you're in a battling game. You know, if I'm moving around using the deck building mechanism, uh, what is going to incentivize me to actually get out there and battle other people as opposed to just sit in my corner and deck build for, you know, 40 minutes before going out there? Um, and so we did things like the outside of the board is all a village um, and you take extra damage if you get hit in the village. So it sort of incentivizes people to leave their starting location. We also put in the middle of the board a bazaar, uh, which allows you to sell a card, uh, trashing it from your hand and gaining its cost as honor, which is the economic currency of the game. Um, that incentivizes people to get, you know, sort of bum rush the middle. Um, but then you're rubbing elbows with uh, all of your enemies. So how long do you stay there? Do you just sacrifice one of your guys? Those two things really helped with the turtling tendency that sort of goes along with battling games. Um, the other really big difficulty we had was trying to figure out uh, what your starting hand was going to be. What cards were you going to have that would allow you to, you know, still feel like you have control even at the beginning of the game, but definitely be very limiting when you get to the end of the game. So we ended up with three old wooden shields. They're the ones that don't give you any economic value to give you sort of that uh, variable amount of honor at the beginning of the game. Um, same like the estates in Dominion but those get trashed after they're used. So it also gives you a little bit of a, a buffer prior to starting taking damage to some of your units. Uh, we also gave a march, which is just a very basic move one space uh, orthogonally in a direction. So you can start moving around the board, but definitely able to be upgraded. And then we gave a dagger, which is probably the thing that I'm most uh, proud of from Ignite is the dagger can be blocked by any other weapon because we really didn't want people just jumping at each other right at the beginning of the game, um, you know, and just attacking their neighbor right out of the gate. Um, and so the only thing you can attack with at the beginning is a dagger and everyone else's daggers and old wooden shields can block it. So they're going to have something that can block your initial attacks. So you might as well, you know, start moving around, start deck building until you get uh, some cards that can actually start doing some real damage to the opponents. I think those are two of the biggest uh, obstacles we came across as far as uh, Ignite and making that area control slash battling slash deck builder uh, hybrid happen. Very cool. And, and kind of something you alluded to, it's, it's all about incentives. It's about figuring out the right incentives to get players to travel down the roads that you want them to travel down. Not that the game's on on rails or anything like that, but that your your incentives are, are pushing the players so that they understand different strategies, different ways to play, and so they don't end up like I have on several occasions, and they get to the end, and they lose by 100 points, and they go, hmm, I don't know how or why. And so creating the incentive structure, especially if you have multiple mechanisms in a game, that players are, are motivated to do the different things that get them points, that bring them closer to victory, help them win, as opposed to just saying, all right, good luck. I feel like using incentives in the right way are the different is the difference between a good game and an amazing game. Yeah, totally agree. Well, cool, Darren. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing advice for maybe somebody who's working on a game that has several different mechanisms going on? Yeah, my biggest piece of advice would just be try and figure out what the vision is for your game from the beginning. Don't just go, okay, I want to build an area control game because there aren't enough of those out there. Like that game is going to flounder uh, just from the beginning. Go into a game with some sort of, uh, you know, dream, vision, thought process, storyline, it can be almost anything. 
but go into it knowing what you want it to look like at the end or how you want it to feel when you play it um, instead of just going into something and say, I want to use this mechanic uh, just for the sake of using that mechanic. Well, awesome. Well, Darren, you got a Kickstarter going on right now. Tell me about that. Give me like the, the two minute elevator pitch. Yeah, so it's the one I've been talking about. It's Ignite. It's a battling deck builder where you fight uh, asymmetrical races across a variably built board. Uh, super creative. So much, uh, you know, imagination put in. Uh, think about all the spells that you use in D&D. Like we're implementing a ton of those. Anything from charming, you know, someone into walking into the Kraken that you just put in the water to, you know, using an ice wall to push someone in the lava. Um, there's just so much creativity put into it. Um, there's different types of terrain on the board that you'll have to navigate and use. Um, and you use the deck building mechanism. So it's super strategic. Luck is very much mitigated in the game so that the best player uh, with the best strategy ends up winning. Um, very cool. And what's the player count? Yeah, so it plays uh, between one and six if you get the solo slash co-op uh, expansion. And then with stretch goals, we're hoping to bring it up to eight. I know that sounds like it plays super, super slow, but we've actually finished an eight-player game in two hours before because the incentive of the game, the win condition, is getting the most trophies, which means getting the last hit on an opposing unit. So it really incentivizes people to be going after each other. And if you're playing an eight-player game, you're right next to you know, a target or an aggressor, depending on you know, whose turn it is. So it's a ton of fun. Awesome. Well, again, Darren, appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, good luck with that Kickstarter and good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you, Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?